Well, welcome to White Oak this morning. And how many of you have a family just like that right there? Right? I love the old plaid shirts, so I thought I'd bring one out today and give you a chance to see that whole idea. Isn't it amazing how we often run back to the Aussie and Harriets and to the Leave it to Beavers and all those other kinds of groups from the 50s? And we start talking about family, and we just wish the good old days were back again. Remember, there was no air conditioning? Your cars, when you sat in the traffic jam, led into your lungs. I mean, there were all kinds of things trying to kill you back in the 50s and 60s, too. So, you know, you think you've got a few things to complain about now. It's nothing compared to then. Hey, welcome, welcome. I'm glad you're here at White Oak today. I'm thankful that you're here. If you're a guest with us today, you picked a great Sunday to attend because we're jumping in and continuing with this series called Home Improvement. Nathan and Kevin and I have been studying and hopefully challenging you with some great ideas for helping present families and future families, for single adults, for married adults, and for students. Over the first three weeks, we looked at three different topics. Number one was to choose today as you started looking at how you could build your life on the foundation of Jesus and how you built your family that same way. Second week, we talked about submit to one another and that it's not about uh, lording over another person, but we used that question, how can I help? And then last week, we took a look at direct your children. And I want to encourage you to go back and and listen to those messages and those teachings because there's some great things for you to pull out from that time. And you can do that at our church app. Um, And here's a couple ways in which you can get into that. Just text WOCC app at 77977. I have to say that out loud because people are listening to this thing online and they have to know what's going on, right? Well, some of you are here today and you're exhausted Some of you are so exhausted you can't even raise your hand when I say, would you please raise your hand if you're exhausted, right? I mean, this is May, and for many of our families, this is when crazy starts if it hasn't started before now, right? We had graduation at a couple of universities this past week. You have had honors programs. You've had concerts. You had concerts you didn't know were on the schedule. You had things that you had to be with with your kids. Those of us who are grandparents are going, why didn't you tell us about that event until two hours beforehand? And you go on and on and on in the month of May, right? Some of you are just going, I am so tired right now. So if you close your eyes and fall asleep, I promise there'll be some times when I may say things really loud and you wake you up. Don't worry. If you startle, we all understand that, right? I mean, it's just crazy. Sports events, proms, concerts, PTA meetings, testing, and more and more and more. Then you throw in yard work and gardening for those of you who like to do that with all the rain. I've talked to God several times and said, God, you know, we want that in June and July, in August, and could you hold off on just a little bit so I can get some tomatoes in and some beans and some other things? How many of you got things in your garden already? Let me, let me see your hands. How many of you like to garden and haven't been in the garden yet? Yeah, okay, there's a few of you there. How many of you have weeds in your yard? Come on, everybody should have your hands up on that one, right? Exactly. Oh, man. I always love being in Haiti and, and in India when they say, help me understand Americans. Aren't you the people who plant grass, fertilize it, cut it every week, and then you complain about the fact you have to fertilize water and cut your grass? Is that not us? First world problems, right? So that whole challenge, you know what I'm talking about. And so for many of us, we're just thinking, I want to get through the weekend, uh, or maybe just the day. I am not thinking long term, I just want to get through this. And that thinking is so real in a time of chaos. If I can just get through today, 
So whether you're raising kids, watching your kids raise kids, or you are a kid, we are really focused on today. And that's just intensified with social media with that new phenomenon called FOMO. How many of you know what FOMO is? Some of you are going, what did he just say? FOMO is fear of missing out. All right? You can, you can uh, tweet that. You know, send that out. It's like LOL, lots of love. <laughs> That's laugh out loud for those of us who are really old, right? Uh, that whole challenge that takes place as we think about those things. But the fear of missing out, I mean, you know, the next thing that might happen in my life might be the thing that will define me for the rest of my life. And if I put too much in my schedule, if I come to church too often or whatever else, it may mean that I'm going to miss out on the next greatest thing. And so I want to encourage you to, to relax here for just a minute. So the challenge with FOMO particularly is the sense that we don't take the long view in our home health. We think it's the next little thing that might happen that will change us. You know, the next concert, next ball game, next TV show, next movie, whatever that might be. And last week, we had you sign these little cards and, and put them up here on each side of the stage where we're praying for kids. And you know, with FOMO, with the fear of missing out, oftentimes we don't stop to pray for those that we are so concerned about. This week, I came in every day and just read through some of the names and prayed for them and prayed for you. You know, we, we don't take the long view in our home health we just hope to get through the immediate. We hope to get through preschool, and then through elementary school, then through high school, then through college. And if you're into the age group that I'm in, we just kind of hope we get through our senior years, right? And it's always getting through, getting through, getting through. It's never thinking about what's the future look like. I mean, for some of us as we age, for me, you know, I look forward to living in my kid's basement. You'll get that a little bit later on, right? Here, here's what I realize in home improvement. We are playing the long game. We're playing the long game. For those of us who have preschool kids right now, we go long game, right? But, but that whole sense of we, I challenge parents all the time that we are not raising kids. We are raising kids who can raise kids. That's what my goal was in raising my children, and that's what I'm praying that my kids are putting into my grandchildren as we go along. What I mean by that is we have to be thinking about how we influence the next three generations after us, the great opportunities that we have. And I think this passage of Scripture we're going to take a look at here for just a moment gives us a great insight in how we can touch generations beyond us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life to a disciple that he loved incredibly and very deeply. It's towards the end of the New Testament. Here's what it says. You've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. And too often we read this as only what church leaders do in raising up next generation of leaders and so forth. I want to submit to you today that this is parenting. You see, somebody told Paul the story of Jesus, and then he also met Jesus. He then teaches Timothy, who then teaches the next generation, who's able to teach the next generation. We see four generations in this passage of Scripture. And can I encourage you to start thinking about 
four generations in your own family? I mean, I, I go back four generations and my great-grandfather was marching with Sherman in the Civil War. That, that's just hard for me to wrap my head around sometimes, that I'm only three generations away from the Civil War. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, me. I'm the fourth generation. The impact that that war had on so many and the impact that it had on my family, that my great-grandfather. Here, here's what Paul's teaching, how we build a legacy of Christians. As I said before, we only read that about leaders, but he's really talking about every Christian is to live thinking about tomorrow, about the hope of the future. Every Christian, here's our big idea today. Every Christian, every one of you in here, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, every one of you in here, this is going to happen. You're going to leave a legacy. You're going to leave a legacy. And we want to talk about that for just a minute. How do we do that? How do we leave a legacy? Legacy is about life and living it's about learning from the past and living in the present and building for the future. When you start thinking about legacies, no matter what your age or your state of health, or you, you just take stock. You look at your possessions and also your accomplishments and your disappointments. You take stock of what you've learned from what you've done in the past and what you're doing now and, and, and what you still hope to do. And with varying levels of awareness, individuals also inevitably reflect on the people, work, ideas, commitments, and social institutions that have given their lives shape and meaning. That's what we look at for legacy. From a purely practical standpoint, if you don't pass on your life experience by leaving a legacy, the wisdom you've gained through decades of difficult learning will disappear when your physical body wears out. It wasn't meant to be that way. A legacy may take many forms. It may take the form of children, of grandchildren, a, a business, an ideal, a book, a community, a home, some piece of ourselves. I mean, our legacy naturally intrigues us. But when we live in the midst of the chaos of the moment, we forget about that long-term game. It's perfectly understandable that we would want to know how the world will remember us after we're gone. I have a friend who's a preacher in northern Kentucky, and he says, what are people going to say about you when they stand around eating potato salad and chicken at your memorial service? That's a little harsh, but it's true. What are people going to say about you? What's the family reunion if it's still around in the next 50 years? What's going to be your legacy and your story that they tell together? Remember when grandpa, remember when dad, remember when great grandpa? How many of us are going to be surprised? How, how many of us are living our lives so our legacy reflects all that we truly hold most near and dear? How many of us are living with integrity and courage? We sang that song just a minute ago. I am no longer a slave to fear. But you know what I see in our culture today is fear and cynicism. Man, Christians, can we be defined that way? We are the ones who have the picture of the future. We know how the book ends. And sometimes we're the most fearful and the most cynical in the world. 
Man, we ought to be the ones out leading the parades. We are who we are because of the people who came before us. Yes, Jesus defines us, those of us who are Christians, but recognize that we are who we are because of the people who came before us. Stop for a moment right now. I'm just going to give you 10, 15 seconds. And I want you to write on your program the name of a grandparent, a great-grandparent, some person who really influenced you. Go ahead and do that right now, all right? If you don't have a program you're not writing on it, I want you to think about it and send yourself a text message. All right? Ten seconds. I'm counting. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four. Some of you haven't even got a pencil out yet. Three, two, one. Keep that name in mind as we go forward. Because when it comes to family, actions speak louder than words. They echo throughout the next generation and the next generation. Your children and grandchildren may forget what you've said, but they will never forget what you do. Do you hear that? Those people that you influence, and they may be in your family line, you may be a single adult, but most people will never remember what you said, but they will remember what you do. What influence do you want to have in your family when you are just a snapshot on the mantle? <laughs> That's coming way sooner than most of us believe. So I want to challenge you with that today. I want to show you how this works from a biblical perspective. I want to take you to the Old Testament book of Genesis. It, it is an amazing story of beginnings all the way through. First book of the Bible, it means beginning. And so we see a lot of firsts in the book of Genesis. I want to take you to a family that just about every family in the world knows about today. It's amazing that the family of Abraham is known vividly by the Jewish culture, the Muslim culture, and the Christian culture, which is more than half of the world today. And I want to show you what generational parenting looks like. Here's a picture of the family tree of Abraham. You'll see him down on the lower left-hand side. And when we trace him through his wife, Sarah, they have a son, Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have kids, Esau and Jacob. Through Jacob and then his wife, Rachel, we're going to come to a guy named Joseph. That's who we're going to talk about today. So Joseph is our focus. Abraham is our foundation as we, uh, as we talk about this today. This, cover, this family covers many years from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis 50. But what I want to focus on are events that take place in a little bit more than just 40 years of time. It starts with Jacob tricking Esau, his brother, who was the firstborn, out of his birthright. Now, we don't understand what birthright is, but in those days, the birthright was such you got a double portion of everything that your, your dad owned. You became the judge and the rule maker in your family. You were the head honcho over everybody who was descended from your dad. And that's really, that's what Esau gives up when Jacob tricks him into that time. Now, Jacob takes all of that from Esau. Then we come down to Jacob's son over here, Joseph. The two together, you see Joseph and Benjamin. But Joseph is the guy we're focusing in on. He's 17 when we look in the book of Genesis at chapter 34. You can read this this afternoon. It's a tough place. He's 17 years old. He's his dad's favorite. He's not the oldest in the family. He's his dad's favorite because that's his favorite wife. Yes, you heard me well. He had four wives. And, and, and not only that, but he has a dream, 
His dad gives him an amazing coat to make him stand out. He has a dream where he, that he tells to his brothers, hey, guess what? I had this dream and you're going to be bowing down to me. I'm going to be in charge. He has a second dream. He says, not only are you going to bow down to me, but so are mom and dad. You talk about outside of the culture. That's what's going on with Joseph. And his brothers hate him. He's often the one that Jacob asks to go out into the fields and find out what the brothers are doing. He is the original narc of the family. We miss that when we're reading through this. We just think, oh, yeah, he went out to see him. A little picnic basket, kind of the Red Riding Hood story, you know, out to the, out to the place. That's what's going on. And Joseph would call him out. He didn't just go and say, oh, you know, they were kind of working. No, Joseph would say, they weren't working, they're in the wrong place, they're not paying attention to the sheep dad, etc., etc. That's Joseph. So on this day in chapter 34, we see Joseph being sent out to find the brothers. There are ten of them out at work, and they are not where they are supposed to be. He goes to that place. Scripture says that somebody said, oh, yeah, they were here, but they went on. And they see him coming. And they say, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the narc. Let's kill him and throw him in a pit. Now, I'm the firstborn. I'm sure that my brother and sister at times thought the same thing. Let's kill him and throw him in a pit. Right? No, come on. I don't care how bad it is. It's really, really bad when, you're, when your siblings are saying, let's kill him. I mean, literally, let's kill him. What a healthy family we have here. One of them says, whoa, 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 let's don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. I mean, that's better. That way we get a little cash out of the deal. We can just tell our dad that he was killed. We'll spread a little blood on his clothing. Dad will understand that. Remember how, his, how their dad, uh, here's kind of a, this is probably way too nice, way too nice. But here he is going off into slavery. Remember their dad tricks their uncle into thinking something that's not true. There's a legacy in this family already of lying. Not a good legacy. Not a good legacy. That's what they saw in their dad. Now let's imagine for a minute you're 17 years old. You're shackled and you're dragged behind a camel just like this by a people you don't understand the language or customs and you don't know, but you do know that you're a slave and you know most slaves don't live long. This is way too nice, this picture. It's the only one I could find. All the rest of them were way harsh, and I didn't want to show them those to you. You arrive then in a foreign country, which is Egypt, where you're sold to a high-ranking official. And then his wife tries to get you into bed, and Joseph resists by saying this. Interesting passage of Scripture. Here's what he said. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. God? Joseph? Isn't God the one who abandoned you? Isn't God the one who let you be thrown into a pit? Isn't God the one who let your brothers sell you into slavery? Isn't God the one who has allowed all this to happen to you? Isn't God the one that has brought you into this family? Isn't God the one who's going to see this accusation brought to you? And he says, I'm not going to sin against God. Here's the deal. Joseph has decided to live his life as if God is with him even when it seems God is not. You better write that down tweet it. Because are you living your life that way? Are you living your life in a way that, as if God is with you, even when it seems like he's not? Because I find a lot of us going, man, God, if you were in my life, these things wouldn't be happening. If you were real, 
This wouldn't be happening. Let me tell you, I cannot imagine being sold into slavery at 17. I cannot imagine getting tossed into the prison, which is what's going to happen right here. He does this right thing, even if right things never happen to him. I mean, he won't sin against the God who's allowed all this to happen. And what does it get him? Prison. It does not get him out of the deal. He's in the dungeon where he may be forever. Because the reality is nobody ever really left prison. We see a couple of stories after that where he's, he's uh, you know, maybe all alone like this. Again, he's only 17, 18 years old. And we know later on he meets a couple of guys and they were in Pharaoh's household and he interprets a dream for them. And the one guy doesn't turn out so well. The other guy turns out pretty well. Here's what we read about Joseph when he's in prison. It says this, but God, but, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favor with the prison warden. We like to get down there on the bottom. Being the favor of the prison warden is no great shakes. It just means you might not get beat as often. You might get a little more food. But notice what the first line says. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. Where are you in prison today? Can I encourage you and challenge you that God is showing his faithful love to you? That he cares about you in prison right now? And Joseph takes his eyes off of being in prison and puts his eyes on God. I mean, where does he get this faith? Even when he does a good deed for someone who promises to remember him to Pharaoh, it's still two more years before anything happens. Man, I don't know if you're like me, but when I pray, I expect God to show up like nanoseconds later. And if he doesn't, I start wondering, hmm, am I not praying strong enough? Is, there, is God listening to years. For some of us, it may even feel like it may have been five, ten, or more years. And when it does, Joseph appears before Pharaoh to answer about a dream. And even then, Joseph answers this way. He says this, it is beyond my power to do this. He's not going to take any credit at all. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Well, wait, wait, Joseph, isn't that the God that's kept you in prison for two extra years? Isn't that the God that lets you be in, in the pit? Isn't that the God that allowed your brothers to do on and on and on? I don't know about you, but I'm thinking I'm beginning to waver by this time. I mean, how, how long, God? And even after two years, he says, God will give you the answer. Here's what happens next. It's... <laughs> He says it's going to be seven years of surplus and seven years of famine. Pharaoh says, I need someone I can trust to be in charge, who's shown himself trustworthy to run my administration. And he says, that would be you, Joseph. Whoa, wait a minute. Now he's maybe 19, 20, 22. You've shown yourself trustworthy and faithful. You've been in prison this whole time. You're accused of attacking your owner's wife. You see, when God opens up a door, it is amazing. And for some of us, 
We're not living in that time when God's caring for us. We're more concerned about what I want my future to be. You can read about this in Genesis 42. That now, seven years of surplus pass, and then there's another two years into the famine, and Joseph's original family is out of food. So his dad sends the boys off to Egypt. You can read about that in Genesis 42, 1 through 7. Joseph is now about 39 years old. 22 years have passed. He is there. He hears voices outside. And the old terror returns. These are the guys who put me in the pit. These are the guys who laughed as I am there and as I'm being hauled off. I don't care how much power you have at that moment. The fear is going to come in. He realizes that he has the power in his hand to wipe out his brothers. And he hears the lack of concern in their voices for anyone but them. We are hungry. We need food. There's no conversation in there about Joseph. They think he's long gone. There's no conversation in there about how we'll care for others. This is about us. We're hungry. Can you imagine the years in the terrifying journey, the years in the dungeon, no idea of a future, and now here they are. How will you treat them? How will you tweet about them? I want to take you to a situation when Joseph was very little that I think impacts Joseph at this very moment. Legacy is built into his life during this time. You see, he remembers an event that's more than 35 years before, I think, when he's very small. His father and their family, they're all coming back to that promised land. They've lived with, their, with uh, his father-in-law, his grandfather, with Jacob's father-in-law, Laban. And they're coming back in caravan. As they come back, they realize that they're going to be running into his uncle Esau, who's had the birthright stolen. Fearful of what Esau may do, Jacob puts Rachel and Joseph at the rear of the caravan. That's specifically said in the, in the text. There's something important whenever those kinds of things are put into the text. His whole idea, Jacob's whole idea, is that they will not be harmed by an angry Esau. Jacob bows down to Esau, and, Je- and Esau runs to Jacob. This is a moment when it looks like everything's going to fall apart. It looks bad. But Esau spares Jacob. No one expected that, and no one deserved that forgiveness. Now, here's Joseph. His brothers have their face to the ground, just like his dad did before his uncle. And he does the same thing. He does the same thing that was done for him and for his family years before. He gives them mercy. He's learned it from his uncle, who is not in the lineage. He has hardly any relationship with him at all. And in chapter 50, Joseph restores the relationship completely because the brothers are still afraid that as long as dad's alive, Joseph will leave us alone. But the minute dad dies, he's going to take care of us. Joseph says, no, no, no. No, no, no. I learned this from Uncle Esau. He did not. Take it back from dad. No revenge. Mercy and grace. So my question to you today is, for your children, for your grandchildren, what will lay the groundwork for what they do in a crisis? What have they seen in your life when things have been chaotic and crazy? What what if we do the 
What if what we do is the thing our kids take as a pattern? How will they react? What if they take their cue from you? Because the reality is, again, actions don't merely speak louder than words. Sometimes they echo into the next generation. And not just for here and now, but in the next 15 years, continue to echo. So grandfather, great-grandfather, aunt, uncle, friend, what will be the echo of your life? Generally, wise persons are thought to project the consequences of a decision far into the future. I'll plant seeds to grow in a spring that I will never see. If we don't leave a positive legacy, what kind of society are we building? What kind of world are we living, leaving behind? What are we passing on to our kids and our grandkids, our neighbors, our acquaintances, kids on our sports teams? In your program today, you'll find a blank coat of arms. Go ahead and take that out. Yeah, it's kind of clunky. I put it together and had it printed off. You'll see it looks like this. When I think of a coat of arms, I think of what will my family stand for? I, I remember as a young boy growing up in a farming community, that one of the values in that farming community was caring for others. I remember distinctly times, this time of year particularly, that my dad would take all of his equipment out of the field, even as he was getting ready to plant corn or beans, because a neighbor was sick and unable to do their farm work. And the farmers in the area would all come in, plant the fields of that farmer, everything that he needed, to the detriment of their own crop. I remember one year, one of our neighbors was a dairy farmer. This is indelibly linked into my, inked into my life because dairy farmers got up at that time at 4.30 in the morning, milked the cows, then they would go on the rest of the day. You'd have to be back again and do it at 4.30. Every 12 hours you had to milk cows back in those days, and we did much of it by hand. Guess what? He gets sick. My dad says, we'll take care of it. Three o'clock in the morning, my dad would wake me up, drag me out of the house to the dairy barn. We were not dairy farmers. We were cattle and pig farmers. They took care of themselves. I didn't have to get up. And we did that for weeks because the guy had a broken leg. 4.30 in the morning, back home after school at 4.30. In between all those things were my practices, my school time, all those other things that were going on. What did I learn from my dad? I learned early on to care for others even if it cost me. I learned early on to care for others even if it cost me. And so when I take this coat of arms, here's what my coat of arms looks like. At the bottom of that, I write my name, my family name, Sean Quiler. In the top right or left quadrant, you can see there, top right quadrant here, I write the word care. Under that, I write the word, hmm, what do I write under there? I'm going to write truth. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Save me. <laughs> truth. Because I'm standing on the word, the truth of God. The, the next quadrant, I have grace because it's truth and grace together. How am I treating others? And in the top part is service. Because that's what I learned from my family. My family weren't great God-fearers, but they taught me those things. And I want to teach that on to the next generation. The question is, what does your coat of arms look like? I want you to take this home this afternoon, family activity, whether you're a single adult or whether you have kids, and sit down and think about what are the four words that describe us? 
What happens if 50 years from now, a preacher pulls out a coat of arms and says, write your own. Will your kids be sitting here and your grandkids be sitting here and say, I remember what grandpa put. I remember what great grandpa put. That's what, that continues to be on our coat of arms today. Because we want to leave that legacy. Some of you know the little poem, The Dash, where you talk about how did you live with that little dash on your tombstone because it has your date of birth and your date of death. What happened in the dash? That's where your legacy is formed. What do you want to happen there? When we talk about legacy here at White Oak, we talk about kingdom impact. What's happening here that will affect God's kingdom over the years? That's being a disciple. That's what it's all about. And, and we can see the legacy of White Oak down through the years, and we can see it all around the country and around the world. And today, I, I want to honor the young man who's going to be leaving us, continuing on in ministry, and he's about to embark on the next leg of his amazing journey. He's a young man who yesterday graduated from Cincinnati Christian University, and Will Hostler has been our student ministry at the Ross campus for the past two years. We want to honor Will for his service to White Oak and encourage him for his future. And I want you to just take a look at this. Uh, being a middle schooler at White Oak was like being cared for and nurtured in the most, one of the most difficult, confusing, awkward, and embarrassing times of your life by people who just really want to hit you with a dodgeball really bad. My name is Will Hausler. I'm the student director at the Ross campus here at White Oak. Uh, I've been a part of White Oak for like... 20 years now, something like that, um, and uh, getting ready to be transitioning into uh, the next chapter of, of whatever God has for me. Uh, it, was, it was great because I experienced God in a new way, like for the first time when I got into middle school, like, and I started realizing, oh, hey, like, um, you know, I, I can start to make my faith my own. And, and there were just so many um, just different adults and older students that were like, willing to invest in me and that cared about me and no matter how you know awkward and weird you know I was at the time it was it was just uh, just a great community to be a part of some of the key moments that I had in high school were pretty much all of them were at CIY move like just like that was just the best week of my year year after year in high school more specifically were the times that I got to baptize friends of mine at CIY move or right and we got back and that was just really, really awesome. And it was one of those times where I realized that, you know, even though, like, I'm a messed up, sinful high school kid, like, I can still do work for the kingdom of God. Like, God is still using me. And so it was really cool um, to just be in ministry um, at that young age and to be able to just see God doing some really cool stuff with the people around me. I preached for the first time when I was in high school to a group of middle school students and Kyle, you know, helped guide me through that process and so that kicked off my love for teaching and so that was that was definitely a key moment. My family played a crucial role in in my faith. Just from day 1 in the Hausler house, you know, that was where my faith was cultivated the most. My dad baptized me when I was 9 years old and that um Every year on the day of my baptism, my dad always gives me a king size Kit Kat bar to like celebrate my rebirth day, as he calls it. And so um, that I think that just is just a 
just a great picture of the way that my dad is constantly investing in in my faith um, intentionally. You know, it, it it was happening then; it's happening now; it's continuing to happen. Um, you know, and I've got to give a shout out to um, you know Nathan and Darren and Christy and and, and the whole staff at White Oak um, and all of White Oak for that matter. Just for as long as I've been here, you know, you guys have always had my back and have always been willing to to support me and to help me grow. Um, I mean, I mean, just everyone. There's so many different people. I've just had a huge part and help me become who I am. So what's next for me is uh, graduation on May 18th and then June 29th, getting married to Rachel. And then at some point in there, moving up to Columbus. And uh, we're moving there because Rachel has uh, a sweet teaching job there. And so we're just gonna be there, continuing to invest in the next generation and uh, just to help other people be overwhelmed with God's love, you know, just like we have. You know, more specifically, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, what church we're going to end up. I don't know what job I'm going to end up with. Um, but we're just trusting that God is going to use us where, wherever we are. And, and we're just praying that, that he puts us wherever uh, he wants us. He's a cute little kid, wasn't he? Yeah, I'm going to invite Will up to the stage. We're going to be praying for him right now. And we'll have Rachel as well. If you're serving communion today, if you'd go back and prepare for that. Uh, right now, we'll move into communion after this time. But I love, I, I don't know how Rachel felt about that, but Will said, I'm getting ready to transition into the next part of my life. It's called marriage, dude. <laughs> Gosh, transition into my, you're getting married, right? And that's an exciting, exciting moment. But this guy, we have watched, uh, we've watched God do so many things in just the last eight years that I've been around here. And you have watched Will uh, throughout the years. Sometimes you've even gone, what did he just do? But that's another story entirely, right? I, I, I can't imagine uh, Bill and Missy and the pride that they have over this young man. And uh, Rachel, you're getting a special one here. Let me tell you, he is amazing. And we look forward to all the things that God's going to do in your all's lives as, uh, as you go forward. Uh, we, do, we do pray selfishly that there'll be a day when uh, Cincinnati's back in your future. But that's another story entirely. We understand the excitement in Columbus. But I'm going to ask you to just put your hands out like you are putting your hands on Will and Rachel right now. And we're going to pray for them. Would you please do that? Father, it's in this moment that we're reminded again of just how you build legacy into our lives. Father, the way in which you have led the Hustler family and now as they have replicated that in Will's life and in the contact that he's made with so many people at Cincinnati Christian University and the, the people who have led him here. Father, right now we commission Will and Rachel to Columbus. Uh, we know that she already has a strong ministry in the school there. We ask, Lord, that you would heighten her influence and her abilities there. We pray your blessing over them. We pray, Lord, that you would bless their marriage, is it, particularly in these last few weeks as they plan for those last-minute things. And, Father, we thank you for the way in which Will Hosser has blessed this church, the way in which he's let you speak through him, the way in which he's let you lead him, the way in which he's followed your guide. So, Lord, we pray that this shadow of legacy will go far into the generations ahead. And we thank you for Will. And we praise you for his life and continue to praise you for the things that will happen in the years ahead. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.